everybody. This is Kevin Carey from New America, and I'm here with the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast with my friends Libby Nelson from Vox.com and Andrew Kelly from AEI. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. So this is um, a delayed podcast. We said, and we were, you know, we said we were going to be better about staying on schedule. This was not in our 2016. Fault. <laughs> um, but we were we were felled by the blizzard uh, and the massive school closures uh, uh, thereof. So we missed January. So this is our makeup uh, podcast for. February, we are uh, recording on the day after the Iowa caucus. We'll talk politics, I think, a little later in the program. Um, but first, drinks. So this is, I brought the drinks in today. This is kind of a holdover. This is something we were drinking in my household over the holidays. Um, so it starts with um, Damson Plum Liqueur. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you you make this. You can buy it, but you make it by buying Damson Plums in season in like August, September, and then you cut them in pieces and you uh, combine them with a bottle of gin mm. and then you put the bottle in your basement for three months and you just let it sit there. And so by the end of it, you get wow. this like very sort of tasty, uh, purple, plummy gin liqueur. So it's uh, that, vermouth, um, rye, and bitters. So Wow. Oh, um, I'm excited. All cheers. Right. Cheers. Wait. We're putting cheers. light to the fact that you yeah. already poured it into the yes. glasses. Cheers. cheers. Oh, whoops. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, I like that. Oh, that's nice. That's really good. Well done. Does it have a name? I think it's just a. I think you. It's. Uh, I found it on like a Pinterest site, like Damson. We should. Uh, Kevin, are you on Pinterest? Uh, well, I like just Googled it, and it was on a Pinterest site. I do not have a Pinterest account. There is no. Kevin no, I've does. It's where she gets a lot of like the recipes that she cooks, yeah. and they're always really good. Yeah. In fact. Um. But I Googled it, and it was on a, a Pinterest site of good Damson. Uh, liqueur recipes. So, Damson. So, so I think it's called. I've never Damson. even heard of that plum. Is yeah, it a special like, kind of plum? I think it's from. I think they make this in England a lot. I think this is a thing in England where you do this this bit with the gin. For the it sounds like and, it sounds like a British yeah, thing. Yeah. I also am like this sounds great, and then I think about having the like attention span to do a basically four month long cocktail recipe. But you just, it just it sits there happen. in your. It just sits there in your basement. I've been meaning to make my own vanilla extract, which yeah. is like the same thing. For you like, just need to do it for like now. it takes like. A half an hour in August, in August or September, you'd start to like think ahead a little bit. It's kind of on the August would... podcast, we'll talk about right, where right, to get right. where to get damps and. Plums. I would find it though, like when I move out of the house. I'd be like, oh, I forgot <laughs> oh, about yeah, this. Yeah, that's good stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> Extra age. <Super> aged. <laughs> um, so um, we we promised in our last podcast to have more very special episodes. Um, I think we, we promised an international uh, episode, although I have to spend some time. Preparing for that one. Um, I think about very special. Why episodes start we, now? We have to do our yeah. research. Right. Yeah. Why start now? Uh, I think we should have one in college sports at some point. You know, just hash it out. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly now the football season's over, so we can we can let the passions of the football season receive behind us. Mm-hmm. Um, but today we're going to talk about tenure. Um, always a topic. Uh, tenure is, in my mind, the Israeli-Palestinian dispute of higher education. Policy debates in the sense that if you say, and my experience, and I've written fairly little about it for this reason, if you say anything about tenure, then um, uh, uh, two warring factions basically like read your words, assign you to one side or the other, and then subject you to uh, ritual denunciation and to make you never want to talk about it in public again. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, so I've written about it a couple times, and that's exactly what's the, happened. The only reason I will do this is that I am no longer officially on the higher ed beat, and so I this will not haunt me for the rest of my life. I, I mean, may, it, it probably still, still will, but it's a little bit less of a problem I wouldn't than it would have been. Um, so I did write about tenure recently, um, uh, it, it, starting with the case of um, a uh, professor named James Tracy at Florida Atlantic University who is a tenured professor of communications, um, and also an unapologetic conspiracy theorist who is the co-author of a book called 
No One Died at Sandy Hook, um, which is a 450-page explanation of exactly that. He believes that the massacre of 19 people uh, at Sandy Hook Elementary School um, uh, uh, and some adults um, and a room full of children um, uh, was a conspiracy uh, by FEMA or the government or something. Um, his The parents of one of the murdered children um, sent him essentially like a copyright notice saying, you can't put a picture of our dead son on your website. He responded by sending them a registered letter demanding evidence that uh, they had ever had their son and is calling them the, quote, alleged parents and saying that the this whole thing is a scam, that they have been uh, making millions of dollars by lying to people about the fact that their six-year-old son was uh, murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, they wrote an op-ed in the local newspaper basically saying, why does earth does this person still work at Florida Atlantic University? He's a terrible human being. Um, and a few weeks ago, uh, last month, Florida Atlantic fired him um, on the grounds that he had failed to um, file routine paperwork um, for several years that is required of all faculty, um, uh, in which listing your outside activities that may or may not be relevant to university business. And he had failed to do this. And they said, you're out. Um so this is, uh, I think, comes as part of some other sort of fairly high-profile cases. There was the case out in Wheaton College where uh, 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 pro, uh, a woman of color, a professor, um, who chose to wore the, um, am I pronouncing this right, the uh, hijab? Is that the right way to say that? Um, in solidarity with oppressed Muslims, um, has also been fired. Uh, take, they've taken action. She's also tenured. Um, Wheaton says it has nothing to do with that at all. It's because she has taken doctrinal... Uh, uh, incorrect uh, positions on the tripartite nature of God. She has actually, said that. Yeah. Yeah, so you can so. talk about the one you wrote about. So I'm, I actually okay. wrote about this one. Right. It sort of bubbled up. Um, the, and I, I did cover yeah. religious colleges for a while. Tenure at religious colleges, I think, is a whole separate issue because right. the, the idea, like there's these ideas that simultaneously are so not out of the bounds of what would be considered a normal opinion to have and hold and be a professor, but are for like obscure reasons or for clear sort of cultural religious reasons, like outside of the bounds. I got very deep into the theological dispute about whether saying Christians and Muslims worship the same God mm. is essentially Christian heresy. There is a very strong mm -hmm. faction that believes that it is. It's really interesting. That's all I have, that's all I have to say about it. Mm. Um, but it is, this is a doctrinal issue that like they did not make up on the spot. It is something that has been discussed, especially mm. since 9-11, because you saw a lot of these sort of comments after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, I think that's when it's like, at what degree does someone get any amount of credit for their good intentions versus getting fired? Like, she clearly, she's a professor, I think, of political science. Like, this is not her field. Mm -hmm. She clearly had no idea that what she was saying was in that sense controversial and has gotten, like, laid out on this very bizarre theological, again, it's sort of basically a technicality as right. in the Florida Atlantic case. Um. And then there was also in November uh, a settlement of the lawsuit that the uh, professor Stephen Salida, I think, mm -hmm. is, uh, um, who was a professor um, who was hired uh, in a tenured job at uh, um, University of Illinois. University of Illinois. Um, Quit his previous job, uh, was ready to start classes, and then the, uh, in almost all cases, pro forma process of his tenureship being approved by the board of trustees suddenly became not pro forma. Um, there was a uh, a public campaign of people objecting to his being hired because of his, uh, I'm going to say, uh, uh, profane anti-Israel tweets. That's a fair statement. Um, uh, they yanked his tenure or said that he was never f fired. Um, he never worked there. Um, and he uh, he sued them and he settled for, I think, $600,000 and then promptly uh, wrote a long piece in The Nation saying that while I had to have settled this lawsuit, the lawsuit is not settled. It will never be settled <laughs> until all oppressed people are no longer oppressed. Um 
So it's you know Which it's is not it, how it works. It's uh, <laughs> it's you know it's so it's kind of brought up this perpetual issue. Um, you know, which I mean, and also there are, there are cases like uh, I think it's the College of Saint Rose right now is in the midst of uh, laying off a bunch of its faculty for budgetary reasons, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So which turns out to be a whole lot easier legally to lay off tenured faculty if you can sort of make some frankly somewhat obscure argument about financial health. Um, or not, or not so obscure. Or not so obscure. Your small nonprofit yeah. private college. Right. <laughs> um, and this so is, the number of colleges where you can't make a plausible argument about about budgetary yeah. reasons is probably fairly small. Right. And that was the Wisconsin change was was had a basically one of the provisions in the change that Scott Explain Walker. What you mean. So Scott Walker right. um, um, advocated for a change to the Wisconsin law. Wisconsin is one of the few states mm-hmm. where tenure was actually enshrined in the state law. Yeah. Um, to create more room for the board of trustees of the university to um, dismiss faculty on on particular grounds, one of which was economic exigency, sort of budget cuts mm-hmm. and so on, which right. which led everybody to say, well, of course, the state controls the budget, so they can decide, you know, um, wholesale whether whether there's a budgetary reason to to fire a bunch of us or but not. But so. professors at the University of Wisconsin said this is basically gutting tenure. Correct. Uh, um, Correct. It's the end of tenure, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, so there's a, a lot of different kind of dimensions to this issue. There's the interaction between tenure and free speech. There's the interaction between tenure and finance. There's the interaction between tenure and the academic labor market and this sort of like broader trend of the adjunctification of the faculty. Um, I have opinions on all of those issues. Do any of you guys want to start with, you can weigh in on any of the recent cases. So I, the, in the op-ed piece I wrote, I basically said, Florida Atlantic should definitely fire this dude. It's crazy that they haven't. And moreover, they shouldn't have. They shouldn't use a technicality. They should fire him because he's a maniac and has no business teaching undergraduates. Um, the courses that he taught, by the way, include a course on conspiracy theories. He taught an undergraduate class. He was very, very qualified to teach that class. I, I, I don't see um, what your problem is. Uh, and I got a lot of pushback from people in the faculty who, who I basically think they see uh, cases like this as a sort of like nazis marching in skokie test case of whether or not you really believe in the principles of academic freedom mm-hmm. or not which are you know you are kind of only honored like in cases like this so um but i don't you know i i i think sometimes you have to sort of draw the line and say who's on the other side of it in order to preserve the line and i think to sort of say there is no line um particularly since it, kind of in the in the broader context of of the thing we talked a lot about in the podcast which is the discussion of uh you know race and justice on the american campus over the last 12 months clearly there are lots of things that you can say on a college campus that are actually like very much in the mainstream of america of the sort of um, the american dialogue uh uh that will totally get you censured or fired uh particularly if you don't have tenure um mm-hmm. so it's just i find it kind of an odd situation where you can be a conspiracy theorist and keep your job or it's hard to fire you but you can say some other stuff that probably 40 percent of the american population thinks is true and they say you're out if you don't have tenure i don't know yeah i agree i think the the interaction between these two conversations is really interesting and i think the nazi analogy is actually a good one because um northwestern my alma mater which has had its own free speech issues um Mm -hmm. the past year or so also implies employees still as far as i know unless he has died because he's not going to retire i looked it up good still there still there a bona fide holocaust denier who is a professor of engineering and who i believe like has been finessed out of having much contact with undergraduates ever and it is hard to imagine how this would come up in his course content, but it is every three years or so on campus, a new group of students rediscovers that this guy exists and is rightfully, I think, like this is one of those things we have pretty much drawn a bright line around that you are not allowed to be, um, is rightly outraged and the administration issues some kind of press release on it and 
we all move on with our lives. It sounds like one of those quirky campus traditions at this point. It really yeah, kind of is. Sort of like, like that's oh, a horrible, like minimizing way of yeah. saying it, especially <laughs> on a campus that's like has a very, very substantial share of Jewish students. But mm. it kind of is. It's like every. I'm sure um, I'm friendly with the, the communications guy at Northwestern, and like this just happens. I think they have the thing on file, right. and the the, mm-hmm. the boilerplate is this is what academic freedom is. We have no grounds to fire him. Perhaps they should be combing his record more carefully to see if he has neglected to file paperwork at any time. But like, yeah, um, I mean, I think what's tough, what's tough for me uh, on some of these cases, and I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a tenure backer. You know, I'm sort of blind tenure backer by any stretch. But I do get, I do start to get a little bit. And this is, this is not just tenure. Tenure is the stakes of this problem. But I'm a little bit uncomfortable in terms of like, and I sort of. Things that are unrelated to your to your field mm-hmm. beliefs or that are unrelated yeah. to your field or discipline that you can somehow be not hired, right? Um, and and it, from the start, mm-hmm. right? And or fired for for beliefs. So like it'd be like if you walked yeah. into a job interview and they gave you like a questionnaire about how you feel about different political issues, right? Or right. like, do you believe in the following conspiracy theories that that would somehow disqualify you from a job that has nothing to do with those things? Yeah. Um, and that that to me is always struck me as i mean a, a firm has a right to dismiss anybody for for you know for for cause if they mm. if they want tenure obviously makes that more difficult um but it's not tenure's not a job for life right you can you can dismiss people for many for many different reasons who are tenured um they may sue you and your faculty may go nuts but um although at some point the distinction starts to get lost right if it, if the cost if the price is so high because you get sued and your faculty goes nuts then you just give people the equivalent of job for life. So what's the difference? Well, I think it's less about yeah, but it, but it's it's not so much that the it's not because you're worried about the cost of the faculty going nuts. It's that it would set a precedent, a potential precedent mm. downstream that that you know it's, it's the same old it's the same old problem that we have in politics where if there's turnover in leadership, like suddenly people might be making decisions on a different. So like you know your your example of the Florida, Florida Atlantic professor is interesting because there's conceivably somebody at Wheaton for whom some of what she's saying is nearly as offensive, right? And so and so like so it does sort of like you know like for yeah. us it seems that seems to be like totally beyond mm-hmm. the pale. For a Christian college where people believe in these doctrinal values, people who teach religion at Wheaton mm-hmm. probably feel that way. It's funny, of the four I examples we've discussed, Wheaton is the one that bothers me the most. Like, I think the the conspiracy theory guy, I, I think you can only explain that through some combination of, like, lunacy, malice, or incompetence. Um, and he, he said... Or mental illness. Or mental illness, right, exactly. Uh, uh, um, and, you know, and, and if that's the case, he deserves the support of his university and treatment. Um but I mean, that's a case where he said, as a communications professor, because I'm trained in this, yeah. I was able to observe right. and see these discrepancies. And so he very much was employing his identity in his field and his expertise. Yeah, whereas the Northeastern guy, has, yeah. I, 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 my impression has been very clear. You know, he's an electrical engineering professor. This, he, there's no right. overlap at all between his Holocaust denial <laughs> hobby and his teaching of circuits or whatever it is. Um, I think, yeah, I think there. I have to say, like the. The free speech case for tenure is pretty convincing to me. I think there there are good mm-hmm. arguments against tenure for other reasons. Mm-hmm. I do think that groups that on other issues, um, including some of the campus speech, racial and sexual injustice stuff, I find wrongheaded or irritating. I do admire their sort of through line commitment on this. And I think there is a point where it's like, well, it's terrible. I think if you were using your field or your mm-hmm. position in such a way that it reflects upon the university, then maybe that that is that is a cause but like eh, i mean i guess part of me is glad that northwestern isn't gonna fire this guy for his totally offensive outside hobby like i i do find that this to be a, a, a 
Well, that'd be I don't a find a better alternative than that starts to become than, a question of academic integrity, yeah. right? Which which is which is grounds for so if you're a plagiar if you're a plagiarizer, right, right, then you should be fired and you yeah. should you forfeit your right to tenure because you're not upholding the standards of academic integrity. Mm-hmm. This sounds similar, so like I could see that that's a those are that's grounds yeah. for firing. And that you know I mean the argument the other argument from the professori who like obviously don't want to be on the same side of a with the. Uh, uh, conspiracy theory guy as well. The problem is the administration is doing this, and it should be the mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. academic community for on exactly those grounds. But I guess that hasn't happened, right? So mm-hmm. the, it's not, the communications department didn't push this person out. I mean, it, had, it was the administration that was kind of coming in. Um, you know, on this Salida case, I think it it was. I mean, it's sort of a uh, the technicalities of it make it a little complicated, and because I think he like he was hired for the job, and I think he should have been paid actually because they hired him. I mean, he quit his job. I mean, he he was economically harmed. Mm-hmm. He quit his job in good faith. the The statements he had made were all made, I think, prior to his being, so it was all out there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I also think the you know the trustees, if the trustees get to approve, they get to approve. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, like a, a pro forma approval is not the same as no approval at all. Um, uh, you can argue the politics of that all you want and say it was right or it was wrong, and I, you know, I understand why people would say, sort of say that. It, it was very much part of his field. I mean, I think he he he's a a person who looks at Native American issues, but he has explicitly made the connection between mm-hmm. that field of study and the uh, indigenous people defining the Palestinians as indigenous peoples, and and so it's not like they're separate at all. He very much talks about them as one thing. Um, it is it is sort of strange to me that you can like I said this in the article I wrote that that you have it's hard to find a people who seem to be more oppressed by speech codes than professors without tenure who are trying to get it <laughs> right so there's all these kind of elaborate things that you can say and you can't say and mm-hmm. you know everyone's anonymous and no one will speak under their same name until they sort of cross that line mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you can tell everyone to f off mm-hmm. in that there's sort of the extremity of that of that of that change in status just uh, there's something about it that strikes me as kind of odd well it's sort of the way academia works right like i was thinking about the fact that if we were hiring someone and they were a vocal conspiracy theorist mm. who believed that Sandy Hook didn't exist, we would know that before we hired them because we generally mm. did not hire people who are forever, right. who are directly out of their... But Tracy became know, crazy after he was 10 years undergraduate, old. Undergraduate studies, right? So that's, yeah. I guess, a little different. But I do think part of it is academics don't change jobs all that much. And so there isn't mm. as much opportunity for like thing, views like this to shake out or to become a reason not to hire someone. And they only seem to emerge once someone is... An office, and I think the the sort of the longevity of the professorial job is kind of at the heart of this. You know, if you were tenured and you change universities every five years, or you, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't tend to get tenure, and then that also meant that you were pretty much going to stay in that place for life unless you were very sought after and offered better chairs and better opportunities elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wonder how much this conversation is about job for life as an academic construct and not so much as something that is influenced or uh controlled by by the tenure system itself i mean i think so i think part of what you're saying is it's maybe a frequency of switching jobs i think it's more so that just the tenure system leads people to and the concept of academic freedom leads people to consciously ignore some of this stuff mm-hmm. right i mean like you could that's you could, mean yeah, so, that's like, so like even because if we're academic freedom is a like, tradition, well, of course, and, we're not going to. Yeah, yeah I know that you're a top scholar in your field. I know that you espouse this crazy view on X subject that like our students mm-hmm. may find offensive and our trustees may find offensive. I think my get my sense would be that the concept of academic freedom would lead search committees and such to basically ignore that. That's a fair point. Um, maybe maybe weigh it. Um, 
sort of subconsciously or implicitly, but um, I just don't, I think that's a big part of it too, is that you're just trained to think that way. Um, um, you, to your point about the sort of pro forma committees, right? There's a reason why, right? There's a reason why tenure has to go through all these t committees, right. and it's because it's a huge high stakes decision. Mm -hmm. So, so as much as they are now sort of pro forma, and it's largely your department vote, those are built in there specifically as as what are designed to be safeguards against hiring poorly or having like a packed majority at a right. department level. But they also set up this scenario where you have all kinds of um, intervening in tenure votes late in the game after people have had a chance. Yeah, to, you met this a fair amount, right? Yeah. Lawsuits get filed. Professor, the dean professor, comes in and says, yeah. nah. Professor at Berkeley that is now at Yale Law School, who is in my department, um, is is suing Berkeley. And the, the lawsuit may have been settled by now, but because he his vote came out of our department strong, somebody wrote a letter to the budget committee, which is one of the committees that had to get this, saying, saying like, I, and he, this is a tenured professor, a former chair of the department, um, I d decidedly think that giving this guy tenure would be a disaster, and they yanked it. Hmm. So um, it's like it's a very. Why is that grounds for a lawsuit, though? I mean, um, because well, because it was unprecedented, never happened. Huh. Um, so and the vote and 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 basically, you can chart everybody's tenure vote. It comes out of the department strong enough, right? right? You can basically the odds of that of the odds of that point of not getting tenure are like zero. Yeah. Um, and so this so it opens up all these opportunities for like really weird, petty kind of um disputes right mm -hmm. between faculty um that that's a whole other thing and then honestly they, this watching some of this is what soured me on going into the academic job market because i just was like why would i want to put up with this right like with where some right. somebody can have like at their whim particularly given your crazy hobbies that we won't even discuss here on the podcast, <laughs> right? yeah and my my strange beliefs about historical events <laughs> i mean the the moon lamp <laughs> that'll be our next very special episode mm -hmm. um i mean part like the academic job market is so weird to outsiders and so weird to mm. people who don't go through this and one of the things that sort of is striking to me and comes up a lot with sort of the speech code issues is it seems like there are a lack of like good jobs they're like great jobs with tenure that you have forever and you can believe whatever crazy thing you want and do whatever research you want and as long as you are generally meeting some kind of expectation you're never going to lose or you're an adjunct which seems terrible for anyone who wants the tenure track job but they're just you know it's it's interesting to me that we haven't seen on a large scale and i know there are some ideas and some some possibilities of like between those two extremes idea emerge of what like academic employment would look like mm -hmm. yeah i think like i know uh, there are ideas that are interesting right. and as i was saying this uh -huh. i was like well but i have seen ideas in places that have done it but like they have not caught on in any kind of you know the popular conception of it is still those two poles and nothing in the middle so yeah i, want, I mean to some extent i wonder if this is and i worry about this whether this is a uh we're debating an archaic institution on some level and 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 i do worry about that I mean, we are i mean it's it's <laughs> i i you know i noted in the thing i wrote that like really literally like right now as we speak the u.s house of representatives science committee is conducting something close to an inquisition around climate change and they are they are engaged in a like essentially punitive process of subpoenaing scientists who support the consensus around anthropomorphic climate change many of whom are employed at universities um because they don't they don't believe in that the people the chairman of the committee just doesn't believe in that and i mean that is you know when you have the government and like the the House of Representatives, and I mean that is state power being used to attack a 
particular scientific, uh, I won't even say point of view, frankly. Um, tenure is one of the things that protects those people. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think, and to some extent, because we have it, I think that kind of thing happens less, right? Because we know that in situations like that, um, even at public universities, the universities will stand behind them. This, I mean, the same thing happened with the Attorney General of Virginia and a professor who was at Virginia Tech for a while. You know, give me all your documents because mm-hmm. you did, you know, you uh, did this and that. Um, I think that's, you know, I think that that threat is like you have to kind of keep the counterfactual in mind in which you didn't have strong protections of academic freedom. At the same time, you know, I was reading uh, uh, recently just sort of in the last week, this sort of new story in the Chronicle about how the there's a dean at MIT who's, you know, she's leaving her job. She's going to create a, a whole new college. No lectures, no this and that. Um, predicted, by the way, in the end of college, written by myself, Kevin Carey. Um published uh paperback will be out soon so look for that on amazon.com the paperback of the end of college oh paperback um, paperback's coming out um nice. the, the whole thesis of the end of college is that exactly this thing that is now happening will happen so there you go um you just you just wanted this to shoehorn that in, i just you? You, this whole conversation absolutely. is an excuse for the Kevin whole to say he was thing right all was along. for that five minutes after that it's up to you guys you can talk about whatever you want but in this so she was interviewed in the chronicle and and you know it's gonna be it's gonna be very different it's gonna be built from the ground up based on technology no lectures etc cetera, etc cetera. at some point uh the interviewer says well what about tenure and she's like nah <laughs> I mean, no i mean uh it, it wasn't it wasn't a measured sort of maybe we'll think about it it was no Mm-hmm. We'll look at different models. People will be on contract, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so this idea of of colleges and universities as shelters, which is something I, you know, it, it, that was an idea that was actually reinforced in my mind when I wrote this long uh, profile of Lawrence Vesey last year, mm-hmm. who, you know, who very much kind of talked about how the, uh, you know, the university functioned best as a shelter for unusual minds, for misanthropes, for people who had strange ideas and it would protect them mm-hmm. from the world around them. I think that's very powerful and very important, and 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 I don't want that to be lost. But then it seems like, in actuality, the again this sort of dichotomous nature of you're on one side of the line or the other, and your status changes so much, mm-hmm. just seems like it's creating lots of weird things are happening. Well, and just the nature of the nature of setting of having an entire labor market that functions on um, having people dedicate six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of their life. Mm-hmm. in service of a goal that increasingly is unattainable mm-hmm. for some non-trivial percentage of them like that just doesn't it's not going to work and what always what always sort of boggles my mind is how i mean I, I the plight of adjuncts i think is real but it's but it's largely a that's largely a problem of universities own making oh sure they produce mm-hmm. far too many people with a promise that there are jobs for this kind of thing and some people some people probably know there are no jobs and they would do it anyway as a labor of love and so on but um that's like they rely on the low cost labor, so they need those people. Mm-hmm. They need those graduate students. But um, you know, like the the odds of getting a tenure track professorship in like English or you know other humanities, like that's low, um, super, and it's getting lower yeah. every year. So, I would actually do a a uh, someone should do this uh, just a, a statistical analysis of that. I mean, look at like just take mm-hmm. all the English programs, rank them by whatever the ranking is, and look at all the graduates and see who's mm-hmm. tenured, who's not. And I bet what you would find. Because I started to do this and I realized it was like a lot of work. And but so you could do like it if you put the time into it. But like Berkeley is the highest rated, is the number one English program mm-hmm. in America. And basically all Berkeley graduates, if they want to go and get tenure track jobs, or almost all of them, I bet that the I bet that the numbers turn radically bad at no more than the fifteenth percentile. 
probably and then after that is terrible I like 50 to 100 yeah, you know what i'm saying on, I mean, but this is a, and this is a function of this is a function of old tenure commitments right which mm-hmm. people work much longer than they used to they mm-hmm. don't retire and so you can't physically accommodate right. more tenure track professors and also as a university you're making financial decisions about not granting as much tenure because it's expensive so yeah you just wind up with this with this glut this glut of people and i think it's way i mean it was true of like you know uh my grad school program berkeley political science very good program one of the, you know top 10 top five probably now um and people still struggled on the job market job market was tough in the mm-hmm. recession but um yeah i mean it's there's there's it's literally not a surefire thing unless you're in the top five or ten programs in in a very sought after discipline with high undergrad enrollments and I, I have actually written much about it, and sometimes people ask me, and my response is usually, that just seems like intra-guild exploitation to me, so it's kind of on y'all to figure it out. Like, well, I'm, I don't know. I mean, don't stop, I guess. It, it seems terrible, <laughs> right? It just it seems like there's just, the, the winners are just exploiting the hell out of the losers and should feel bad about it, and sh- there should be a more just system, but it's not, but it, as an outsider, right? You know, someone mm-hmm. who kind of looks in and the whole thing seems kind of strange. I mean, if... If someone who worked for me wrote a book called Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, I would fire them right away, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I don't think that would be controversial action here. Mm-hmm. And same thing, you know, so like most people live in a in a system of at-will employment. And, and particularly if you're in the in the sort of business of writing publicly where where reputations matter a lot and, and individual actions redound on the value of the organization that they're belong. I mean, I'm sure the same thing is with, with Fox. I'm sure yeah, I was just about to say, I think you know, um, this is one part... Journalism, and, journalism, and academia right? are just mm-hmm. close enough together to like chaotically misunderstand each other and mm-hmm. create endless resentments. Um, That's a good point. Which I think one, mm-hmm. you know, I I find the adjunct plight as a whole very depressing. I find individual narratives about it irritating and choose to sort of not read mm-hmm. them. And it, it is absolutely my bias, and I'm aware of it. But it's sort of this: if you're in a field where there are very few jobs and a lot of people being prepared for them. The idea that like you might have to do something else with your life is like yeah like that's that's how it works mm-hmm. and you know I the difference is though and I, I realize this and it's why I don't write about this and it's why I don't usually say publicly that I find these things irritating um, is that you know I went to journalism school for four years as an undergraduate it's fine I didn't spend nine years of my life you mm-hmm. know getting a PhD which really only actually qualified me to do one thing and mm-hmm. so I think it's there's a lot of these like it's almost comparable and so people start to make analogies and like the second you stare at the analogy square in the face for more than 30 seconds it falls apart yeah as with your love actually hot take i'm gonna i think we should now also bully you into writing a box piece on your chaotically misunderstand each other point which i think is a good one and and i would read yeah i i think it's and it's worse because like we are among the places and a lot of places are doing this that are like further and further and further blurring the line, right? Like there are mm-hmm. now academics who write for the public in essentially the same way as journalists. Um, we are doing more of that. It's a public job posting, so it's fine. But like we, we are hiring people whose jobs are in part to like find academics who mm-hmm. want to write for a popular audience and edit them. Mm-hmm. But like the more and more that happens, the more journalists think that like, oh, it's sort of the same thing. And like, it's not the same thing. I don't understand mm-hmm. the norms at all. And um, to bring in a totally unrelated point, the Alice Goffman controversy is sort mm-hmm. of also about how yeah. when sociology looks like journalism, mm-hmm. journalists look at it and are like, I find things wrong with this that apparently are totally different than what sociologists find wrong mm-hmm. with this because I of the, the norms the and regulations. Yeah, I thought it was really good I really, too. I and it sort was, of got at yeah, that. Um, that yeah, it, I've read enough. 
It was. Yeah. You should read this one actually, it's really, because um, it's really it's, annoying to me. It's. Uh, but this one's actually worth reading because it's different it's really from the rest good. of them. It's yeah. really yeah. just talking about exactly what Libby said. That that it basically just sort of boils down to journalism and sociology not being the same thing. But they mm-hmm. feel like the same thing. And people if you were applying reading, the standards yeah. of the one to the other, and yeah. you just have to kind of understand that. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's what sort of set me down this this right. this track. But I, it's it's definitely beyond that. It's you know any. Anything other than like the very hard sciences and maths, which I don't know enough about, but anything where you could, in theory, write about your subject for popular consumption, I feel like this this blurring is, is happening right more. Well, and the, I mean the the uh, the sort of ethical philosophy around human subjects could not be more different, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. so yep. on the journal on the academic side, more and more and more to a point where many people now say to a fault. Academia is all about protecting human subjects, and we have. There was a good article in Washington Monthly a couple of years ago about how human subjects review is like destroying, so you know, the social sciences. Mm-hmm. And, but it's, I mean, there's an ethic there, right? Which mm-hmm. is don't hurt people. Journalistic ethics. Do, I mean, as someone who sort of is half in, half out, there there aren't any. I mean, nope. basically, like your responsibility is to the, to your truth, the reader, your editor, and if people talk to you and don't very explicitly say don't publish publish this, they are on their own. Right. Janet Malcolm, and, right? I mean, like any, I don't remember the exact line, but any journalist with an ounce of self-awareness knows that what you're doing is morally indefensible. That's like, basically yeah. the exact line. That's the first line. And yeah. it's a great, everyone, like every, you should not be allowed to be a journalist without reading the journalist and the murderer, Janet, Janet Malcolm's piece, which is a, which is, it, it's exactly right in my opinion. It is a fundamentally exploitative endeavor. Um, and you just have to I don't, I'm not going to argue with you. I don't you disagree know? with you in any way. Um, and it's something and it's, that like, I think most people come to realize. And it also, even for people who can, and, and her point is, even for, for people who go into it with their eyes open and give consent, it's still exploitation. It's still selfish. Um, and, and that's, I think that's all true. I don't so, know why I, anyone talks to reporters. This has gone, this has gone way afield, but like, I hate being yeah. interviewed. I would counsel people not to do it. Well, I think this is one way, one way, you know, to bring back to your point about sociology and journalism being different i mean one way in which they're different they should be different is that academic disciplines have tools mm-hmm. accepted tools with which to derive conclusions and mm-hmm. and you know analyze evidence and data and figure out what the right answer is journalism tends to not have those they have mores and norms around mm-hmm. what's what's reasonable checking of facts and sources and so on um, that tends to go awry all the time right um and and so like but this i think is so i think the processes that disciplines have set up is actually in a way um um it's an important um concept related to tenure as well right because like you have right like to the extent somebody violates the rules of of academic disciplines and doesn't uphold you know standards of academic um, integrity then then your job for life no longer applies right you're we can dismiss you because your job description is that you are a scholar of X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. and if you publish if you publish falsehoods and you come to does anyone ever get fu- lose their tenure for that though? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure we could dredge up cases of people who like published fraudulent studies and lost their ten- lost so, tenure. For, there was that social psycholo- social psychologist yeah, yeah. in Europe who fra- who well, we fabricated about like that dude studies in, out in the Berkeley writer UCLA. We talked about that UCLA. Please, sorry, man. Please, not the flagship University of California. Um. Yeah, I mean, he was he was a little earlier in his career, but I, presumably if he had been t- tenured, he was he on the tenure track. He still would have been, been on the tenure track. But if he sure. had been tenured, he still would have gotten canned, right? I believe so. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh, that's a pretty high bar. That's though. not an Making issue of academic freedom, up, though, right? Like so. you're not. That's not like I. That's not like I think I have the right to say this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's I lied about all this all this uh, all the things that I did as part of my mm-hmm. commitment to my discipline and to um, 
to tr- you know research. Right? I also think that I think about tenure from the perspective of like the relationship between individuals and organizations, and mm-hmm. I think that because if you I mean, I, like I'm a manager, right? So I actually uh, spend more time than I used to just thinking about the relationship between individuals and organizations. Because if you're a manager, that's a lot of what you need to do is kind of mm-hmm. maintain the health of that relationship. And um, there is, like in my opinion, the healthiest relationship is one of collaboration and shared values and interdependence, right? Like you, whereas a tenured professor, it's it's sort of like it almost naturally pushes people to a position of, uh, you know, well, we're stuck with each other, right? Mm-hmm. So you can mm-hmm. screw, you know, so like the administration, it, college administrators are constantly frustrated by their faculty who can do whatever they want and faculty are constantly frustrated by the administration. This is just sort of the reality, I think, of the culture mm-hmm. of campus life. And I mean, I have a friend who's a, a, a very smart person. He's a tenure professor. I, I agree with him on a lot of things. And on this issue, what he says is, you got to understand the college administrators are all a bunch of morons and those people should not be allowed anywhere near any decisions about faculty. They're idiots. They're, that's why they're administrators, right? Because the smart people become tenured faculty and the administrators become, I mean, he's just, he's extreme on this issue and, and maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. I have no idea, but, but like, I, I would like to think that that level of kind of, that is not a functional relationship. That's not a collaborative relationship. I don't think that organizations function best under those circumstances. I don't yeah, think. I don't but, know. Th- yeah, but that's like, I mean, that's that's the case in lots of different, right? Management and labor, right? There's always there's always tension between, Some, between those but, parties, but, right? But like, kind of... Lab- the people who do, a lot of people who do the work, mm-hmm. right, tend to think that management I guess that's right. is, full, is full of morons who don't right. understand what they do. I don't know what my tries to grade them on things. So I could be, you know, yeah, I could be totally off. No, I don't. No, I think it's just a. I think it's just the nature of, um, you know, if you if you're able to if you're able to not have that at work, that's great. But that's not. I think that's not. But I think the, the large fact majority. That I of think firms. that I think there is a a strong relationship between that and at will employment. Actually, mm. and again, this is all for people who have a lot of status and power in society. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I think this is interesting because it's partly people who, if they were working elsewhere, that would not necessarily yeah. be the default. I don't mean like this, certainly yeah. there are lots of people You're in talking about like white the white collar knowledge. Let me just say, but like that, um, hopefully not all right. of them do. Like, in different circumstances, with people who do not have this power, this is not describe my life at all. I don't think it's money a hatred of in their economy. No, but yeah. like I think it's I think it's a I think it's a generic sense that. That your ma- that management doesn't understand what you do, right? Which mm-hmm. describes the exact principal agent problem that they that managers face, right? They don't, and they can't, so well, they have to figure out I ways to try and understand. The point of management is understanding what your the people who work for you do. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the difference between being a good manager and not one. You know? But it's, I mean, I but think... in our yeah in our in, in right, our right, but field... I feel like in academia the entire idea of a concept like the fact that we're using the word manager immediately mm-hmm. is a suggestion that we have strayed like very far. Oh sure, from, very yeah, far that's from definitely the, true. Very far yeah. from the, yeah. the one thing that, and that's part right, and that's part of why your friend feels the way that he does. I'm guessing, right? It's like that 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 you sign when you sign up to be to get a PhD and to get a tenure track job, you're signing up to basically not have a manager, right? right. To not have a boss. To to quote another tenure professor at a well-known public university who I was debating on this subject, we do not work for the administration. Mm-hmm. Period. We work for the public. It is up to us. Yep. Um, that unapologetic and with no caveats, and that, and I don't think he's the only person to to think that way. But but I think that's crazy. 
You know, I mean, I, I think that's crazy. I think the idea that you can have an organization, I think self-governance is a contradiction in terms. I think the, <laughs> the idea that you can have a huge, expensive, publicly subsidized organization where the people who are doing the work are have no accountability and there's no management is, uh, I don't know, I just, that is like outside of my frame of reference, I guess, in a way. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know how you can operate that way. I mean, to me, this is all, I think, to me, like the tenure questions, which maybe this would be a good segue to our next topic, but the tenure questions seem to me to be like this very small sort of binary conversation about whether it's good or bad and whether, you know, it should exist or not. And reality, sorry, in reality, what it is, is it's actually like part of a much larger problem, which is like we've never figured out how to create a pipeline of people to teach undergraduates mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Right? And tenure, the tenure system doesn't do it. In fact, it militates against it in many places. Um, Mitigates. Mi um, well, no, I actually would say no, like, I... yeah, I would say militates, right? You're right. Yeah. It might be the dampers. Um, it might be the dampers. <laughs> my, um, my pedantry is off. So, yes, that's fine. Yeah. Um, and I didn't get much sleep last night, so I feel pretty good about that one. Um, so... And that to me is like, so I think the tenure stuff is sort of red herring, honestly. I, I think I think it's the larger questions about like, what do we do? How do we create a system of post-secondary institutions that are staffed with people um, uh, who actually want to do the job of teaching more than 5% of the population, mm -hmm. right? I mean, your book's good on this, right? Your book's great on this. It's like sort of, it's never quite changed from the time that it was educating like nobody to now. And all the stuff looks the same. Tenure looks the same. The pipeline looks the same. Getting a PhD looks the same. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about that. Yeah. Teacher teacher prep, right, in the last decade or 15 years has undergone massive amounts of change. Um, and and good luck, you know, figuring out. More needed, but yes. Yeah, sure, sure. Also sure. not fixed. No, no, not fixed by any stretch. Yeah. But at least you have but like, yeah, no, there is. People are, people are thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's a different, I mean, that's actually, that's a parallel I was sort of thinking about here because the case for some kind of tenure at the K-12 level is like so much weaker and yet so much stronger at the same time in some ways when you think about the way teaching ties in with like community values and the things that people have very strong feelings about. On the other hand, it leads to sort of the rubber room job for mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. problem and it even, like the extremes of like the arguments for and the arguments against are almost even more polarized, I feel like, and I see the merits in both of them, which is useless, but um. There also, you know, there's so many teachers. Like, it's such a different... It's mm -hmm. like how there's always this mythical teacher shortage that doesn't actually exist, but people find plausible that it exists because we there are, like, millions <laughs> Another of Another story idea. Go back 10 years. Find all the people who said I mean, what the world will be like 10 years from, from now, which is now. Did it happen? No, I don't think it happened. There are a million... I heard this weekend there are a million... Over a million faculty members in teaching right. teaching at college and university. Yeah, sure. It's a lot of people. That yeah. is more. That's that is a lot of people. Well, yeah. you figure, you know, there's across four all or five the... million teachers, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. So this is all right. So. Hmm. All right. Well, that was fun. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in the last part of our program, I, mean, I feel like we agreed too much about that one. We need okay. to find something we can fight about more. All right. Uh, we need to get a, we need to get a professor in the <laughs> in the room next time when we're going to talk about this. None of us have stakes. Um, yeah, yeah, we should get like Steve Tellis to come talk. Um, so it was the, uh, the Iowa, uh, caucus yesterday. So I want to say, so one thing I want to say, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Jeb Bush education plan. Um, I believe on the podcast last June, uh, when Donald Trump was first oh, coming into this. So I said, I so, so Trump was coming into the, to the race. I've been thinking about this mm. and I said something on the podcast to the effect of, uh, 
some joker is going to go out there and use Trump's fake candidacy as an excuse to write a piece about Trump University. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of pre-making fun of that person. That person, of course, was Libby Nelson. It was. Who wrote that piece a week later. And it just goes to show I know nothing about politics. So I'm sorry, <laughs> Libby. I was right. I was wrong. You were right. Uh, you were the first one to write the um, piece about the tremendous fraud that was It was Trump not University. a week. I'm pretty sure I wrote that piece in September. Um, well, I, I felt, I felt like it was phone. pretty soon afterwards. It, I felt like it was it, it was not long. Maybe, maybe I'm getting there. I felt I, like we I, I had maybe, that conversation and then your piece came out not that long. What I remember about that conversation is Andrew's vehement argument that Trump was going to be good for the Republican presidential field. I do remember I that really too. I really wanted to check in on and see yeah. how you felt about that yeah. uh, six months later. But that, that was a yeah. fun, that was a fun conversation. Yeah. But I remember your piece coming out. Like, oh, Libby wrote the piece, and it sh- as you should have. Yeah, I probably, you, I probably got the idea here. So, so I don't. I'm always wrong about politics. I have no good instincts for them. Um, but I'm also uh, often. I feel like we should write like right now, right here, right down our, right down our nominees, seal them in an envelope, and I did open it, them. I did it just before I left you? the office. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been meaning to do mates, it. Like, yeah. I could okay. do it electronically, but it's not the same. It's yeah. like saying why, we, why do we need to write it down like what we just say it on the podcast because i think we write it down and then we and then we can have like a ceremony of like opening the, the envelope because then we would have to listen back to like prove that we weren't falsely implanting memories that we'd been right all along okay that's tedious mm. all right which i i'm already getting the I'm, my memories are already also always false <laughs> already false i always think i've been right on this podcast every time never, <laughs> never been wrong um, so a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, Jeb Bush uh, released uh, an education agenda. It was actually very detailed, very interesting. There were a lot of good ideas in it. Andrew, you wrote a piece in Forbes magazine talking about the higher ed uh, part of that agenda. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very interesting. Um, uh, what does it say? What is the Jeb Bush? It was in na- it was a National Review. Sorry. Um, it was Jason Jason was it Delisle and Forbes? I. No? Uh, Mike Horn wrote about it in Forbes. Okay, yeah. yeah. Jason Delisle, who is uh, FYI a colleague of mine here at the uh, new at New America. Yes, but, just to point but, out that we've preserved my mother's record as you being the only person who she sends to me who I both know and read um, in her trawlings of the conservative internet. So. Wow, well that's good to hear. Yeah, I suppose. you impress my mother. You, it good. impresses that, that I. That I um. So and the full um disclaimer on all of this. Jason and I both worked on this as informal advisors in our private time, right. not not as not affiliated with either of our institutions. And if you read the National Review piece, you'll notice that we're not labeled as in, having an institutional affiliation for that reason. Um, the Jeb Bush plan is uh, multifaceted, but 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 we like to think that it wasn't quite as kitchen sink ish as um, as Hillary Clinton's. Um, Would have been hard um, to be more. That's sink-ish. right. That's right. And and in that and in that respect, I mean, really not at all kitchen sinkish. I think it was uh, pretty streamlined. Um, the big ideas would be to basically uh, transform the federal financial aid programs entirely into um, account based um, loan and grant money. Uh, the big the big nugget of the idea, which would be open to every high school graduate uh, who wanted to pursue a, a post secondary education, would be a fifty thousand dollar line of credit that you could draw down, uh, you know, largely at your discretion, but within some limits, um, you know, annual limits, credential based limits, um, uh, and you would pay back a percentage of your income based on how much you drew down. So if you and it'd be roughly one percent for every um, ten thousand dollars is sort of the the model. So if you brought uh, for twenty five years, twenty five years, yeah, okay. for twenty five years. Um, at that point, you know, and, and you can only pay up to 1.75 of what you drew down. So there's a cap on the upside of, of uh, so if you, so if you're Mark Zuckerberg, right, you don't, you don't have to pay that right. for 25 years. Yeah. Um, so you'd, you'd, he would hit the cap very quickly, right? So, um, the other piece is, um, so you'd have that money, you could draw that down at your discretion, you'd pay back out a share of your income. We plow, we plow all of the existing programs, Stafford loans, plus loans, tax credits, um, all of that is sort of 
consolidated into this and a, and, a, and a grant program that looks something like the Pell Grant program, but is actually um, much earlier in somebody in a student's lifespan, and it's done entirely through the tax code. Um, uh, I should also say that the withholding for the um, the pay the, the repayment of the 50k is also done through your taxes. When you say it's much earlier, what do you mean? So in eighth grade, we, in eighth grade, um, uh, the plan calls for. Um, parents to be notified they can check a box in their tax return that says i have a 14 year old kid or, mm -hmm. or whoever uh <clears throat> via that they can they can get an estimate of what they would likely be eligible for and then over the course of high school they can check that box each year um and uh and and essentially the government would set up an account for them where pell grant money grant need-based grant money would flow into that account um on the basis of your income um, each year, um, and so you'd ha you'd basically know what you're what you're starting. College so, is, with. are you still? Do you still get more aid if you're poor? I yes, guess you do. Yep. Yeah. So, so I mean, what's what what? So, if you read like some of the some of the Pell reform ideas that are out there, people do suggest, and I think I tend to agree with this that that it is a little strange to assign people um, need based aid based on basically one snap one year snapshot of their income. Mm -hmm. This is sort of a much. This would be like sort of a more global look at like, oh, this is this is your you're you're actually a poverty. You're in poverty. Um, you're you're very poor because you've had four years. It's accumulated over four years. Um, it also sort of like, you know, it 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 solves or attempts to solve some of the trouble of like people not having any clue um, that they'd be eligible for this money. I mean, a lot of I think what we're learning from promise programs and some of the free community college experiments in the states is that that just the message of you have money to spend and you don't have to pay it back and you're not gonna have to borrow to pay for some of this stuff with this money that can have an important behavioral effect on on um how students go we'd like to build you know ideally you'd build some flexibility into how people spend both pots of money the the borrow the the the, the line of credit and the grant money um um you know you have to do that within reason because you don't want to you don't want people to like you know spend a ton of money in one year or have institutions charge tons of money for a small a short-term certificate so you have to build in the right safeguards but basically designed to be a much more flexible much frankly much fairer system and much more predictable system than we have now with that ensures affordable payments and allows people um uh, a greater amount of information certainty around what they have mm -hmm. at their disposal so those are the, t the big key ideas I have, I have two questions and then a, I, this is making me wish I'd written about it, which is something I can also talk about in a sort of defensive self-serving how the media works uh, way, <laughs> no. which, but why the tax code? What about people who don't file taxes? Mm -hmm. Why not just an early notification with sort of the same mechanism without that? Well, so we wanted to do away with FAFSA. So, which I should have said, this, there's yeah. no there's no more FAFSA under the system, right? Because everybody can get the 50K mm -hmm. and the need-based grant is done entirely through the the tax system. Um, that's why, largely, because mm -hmm. we, you know, we the first, the first, the, the big idea that we sort of started with was this 50k drawdown income-based repayment, and the beauty of that was that you didn't have to have FAFSA anymore because everybody can use it, and then it's done through withholding on the back end, um, tax, you know, tax, uh, tax withholding. Um, but you had to figure out some way to assign need-based aid if you were going to get rid of FAFSA. So for people who don't file taxes, they could they could pretty easily. I mean, you could you could handle that in a number of ways if they receive a need-based. Um, um, uh, income-based sort of um, aid, like a like a SNAP or um, uh, TANF, um, you could um, they could sort of be eligible automatically eligible um, mm -hmm. for some of this for the grant money. Um, if they're not, if they don't receive any of that, but they still don't file tax returns, they could there'd probably be some you know we could set up some system that would there'd be a short form mm -hmm. that you could fill it out with any income documentation you need. Yeah, it's a good question, but I mean for us. 
we did we did discuss that and part of this is also like maybe that would entice more people to file their taxes right yeah i guess the, the thing that and i think most people with dependents do because of the child tax credits mm -hmm. the itc things mm -hmm. like that that sort of go up if you have kids so i'm curious sort of how non-traditional students sort of function in that system where if you're 27 like the fact that you could have known in eighth grade that you were eligible doesn't yeah that's really largely a transition in. issue right yeah. so um and that's how we that's how we thought about it like is if you if you implemented the system you wouldn't those people 40 years from now wouldn't exist because they they would have known so um yeah, I mean, the, with the adult students, we, we, we thought that they could they would probably um, have a similar tax based, um, um, you know, box check off. It, it that 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 would be need to be hashed out in the design phase, I think. And and also, it's also true that like those are the folks that you probably have to be a little bit more concerned about supply side response in terms of like setting up programs that are that are that are more expensive maybe than the, if they had some flexibility around how to spend. Um, but yeah, no. Essentially, none of this would change. They, the adult students would have access to the 50K if they mm -hmm. didn't have a bachelor's degree yet. And they'd, they, the, the end result under the, under the new Pell arrangement would likely be that they have a, basically exactly the same amount of Pell money that they'd get now. So, Do we maintain the same system of Title IV eligibility at the institution level? Like, Do we still leave it to the accreditors to decide who can get this money? Um, we, the, the accreditor, we did, the accreditation system stays largely intact, but there's new, there'd be new federal rules around, um, um, using the income base, the data generated by the income base for payment process to, um, to both do two things. One, set a ri more rigorous standard on who has access. So set a performance floor. If your students are not paying back into the system, like chronically based yep. to pay back performance. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, it's a repayment rate. Right. Yeah. It's a repayment right. rate essentially. Yeah. Um, um, because there's no balance, it's a little different, right? You'd have mm -hmm. to sort of use the 1.75 as the benchmark, but um, and then for for schools above that, um, you do you'd have a skin in the game risk sharing kind of if you're mm -hmm. um, so you've you've gotten over the threshold, but your students are still lagging way behind, um, so you're going to be responsible for some amount of the money that they're not paying into the system. Um, so those are those are the, the two big um, two big new accountability um, regimes, and then. Uh, uh, as far as like accreditation reform, creating a parallel path to Title IV eligibility that would be um, largely performance based. Um, if you're a new provider, you can get get limited access to federal aid um, over time. I could have done a whole hour on this. I I have many more questions, but I we should have. I think we have to we have to wrap it up. But yeah. Well, we could do a whole the hour. silence. Could we, could we no, but this but the silence is indicative of how the plan was greeted by a lot of my friends yeah so i'm, yeah, I'm sorry I'm about your about friends before, i can give i can give before, my defensive media spiel here right, so I, I, had, I, don't, I can't make excuses for the higher you know, I, mean, I, think, I mean i think the, the if i could just say one one sure. thing quickly yeah. so like people have been talking for for like de a decade if not more right about right. the need to get rid of fafsa mm -hmm. they need to get the need to use the tax credit money for more productive purposes right, right? the need to rationalize repayment and do mm -hmm. it through the tax code all those this plan would do all of those things and not one person who chronically writes about those uh, or routinely writes about those topics said much of anything about it we did get some very nice reviews from people which was great yeah. and and I, that that to me was was less important um, than actually getting the plan out there but i, th I did think it was kind of interesting i mean i don't like i don't think we have to sort of explain to readers why it was you know a wonky jeb bush policy proposal released in uh, late january on a saturday, on a saturday. Afternoon. i mean you know uh, politics is politics Martin Luther King um, weekend. Martin Luther King yeah, Day was yeah, the actual. Sunday, the Sunday yeah. of Martin so, Luther King weekend. Uh, exactly. um, 
before a blizzard. Which, which, by the way, which, by the way, nobody, nobody has any control over other than the people who decide to release right. it. No, no, but that was bad. Like, come on. Sure. Yeah. I, I think it's super interesting. I mean, I didn't write about it in part because uh, Jason, my colleague, yeah, was yeah, involved yeah. with it, and, and also um, I want to contrast it because I think in our last podcast, I, I sort of teased this big uh, think piece that's coming out from um, uh, New America uh, Higher Ed, which is in some ways kind of the like mirror image of what you guys are talking about. Mm-hmm. In the sense that it sort of begins with the same premise of blowing the whole system up, but instead of uh, uh, going toward like vouchers, mm-hmm. uh, it goes toward direct uh, grants to mm-hmm. states and institutions, and it's a, it's sort of a it's like the big government version of what you're talking about, or, um, not, or not at all, right? No, no, I mean, for, <laughs> for, for, but 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 I think there's an I I having read both plans, mm-hmm. uh, there is I think at least an ideological coherence in both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Like you sort of. And, and, and a willingness to acknowledge kind of the pluses and minuses of taking those approaches. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I think like either would be better than this bizarre system we've kind of ended up with. And okay. I mean, I, I mean, I'm anticipating some of the arguments I think we're going to have. Our, that was our goal. Right. You know, or not. Which is, which is, I mean, I'm anticipating some of the things that I think I'm going to end up saying in response to people who don't like uh, probably either what you said or uh, also what we said. But, you know, if you're worried about, uh, uh, students borrowing more and more and more money to pay colleges more and more money. You either have to like you have to be serious about not doing that anymore, mm-hmm. right? Like if you if you don't have some plan to control prices or like reduce lending, then you don't have a plan to solve that problem. And I think I mean your plan on some level would be that plan, and I think our plan would be also. But um, so I mean I think it's interesting. I think it's I'm glad to see that we're in some ways the the uh, Sanders and Clinton kitchen sink plans, which are actually not all that different from one another, I would argue, in, in a lot of ways, in the sense that they keep a lot of the same system in place, helped kind of usher in this era of big thinking about federal higher education finance. At least we were allowed to sort of talk in big numbers in a, in a, a high-profile way and sort of say that, I mean, implicit in that is the idea of large reform and not just a little more money here and some reforms there. So. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of cool that we get to have these conversations in a way where people will take them seriously. I think our next, I think our next podcast actually should be sort of a this. Like, I, I would okay. like to do a broad one mm. on right, like, yeah. higher ed in the election and how it sort of grooves into this level. Like, I want to talk about path dependence and how this relates to healthcare and how mm-hmm. you know that it is it is unthinkable. And I basically agree to say like, you know, what we should do is we should blow up the healthcare system and start over with single payer and everyone's right. like that will never happen. But on higher ed, on both sides, it's like, hey, you know what we should do? We should get rid of this like bizarre kludgy system and like that is still in a thing that people propose as if, as if it would happen. I don't know. I would very much like to talk about this at length. Well, I mean, we have, so our next podcast is scheduled for two weeks from now. Are we oh, still doing that? well, okay. So, because we are two weeks late on our last one. So, so um, yeah. I just feel it. like we all have a lot of things to say about this. Okay. All right. Yeah. To be continued. To be continued <laughs> in our next podcast. Well, um, as always, thank you, Andrew and Libby. Thank you to John Williams and Amanda Gaines and our great staff here at New America who produce all of our podcasts and keep our levels even, even as our levels are not even. Um, and thanks Sorry, to all of you. Thanks to all of you who are uh, listening out there. Um, it's great to be back uh, in your earbuds in the new year and we look forward to more to come. So thanks and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.